Hello, and welcome to the Girls Fuel podcast. My name is Haley. I'm a registered dietitian and nutrition coach here to help you along your health and fitness journey by providing evidence and experience-based knowledge and full transparency. We have a lot to chat about today, so let's dive on in. So thank you for being here. This is our first episode back in a while. We took a little bit of a hiatus, and I'm really excited for today's topic. I'm glad, I'm excited that I'm finally able to talk about it and share it with you in full. Um, and it's something that I get asked a lot pretty frequently, and that is how I healed my gut. So for a lot of you that have been following along um, and, you know, asking me questions about my my journey with gut and hormonal health on Instagram, I appreciate you. It means a lot. And then now that I am, you know, in the clear and everything is functioning as it should, I wanted to share a little bit of what that journey looked like for me um, and some things that I'd recommend if you are in a similar position that I was. So... <clears throat> It all started probably about, you know, a year ago back in 2022. Um, And I honestly didn't think anything was wrong with my gut directly at first. I knew something was going on in my body, but I had no idea what was going on. And some of my symptoms were brain fog. That was probably the biggest one. Um, I had struggled with brain fog on and off for the couple years before 2022 through grad school um, and all of that. And I just kind of equated it to being stressed or, you know, not sleeping well because I've had my struggles with sleep, which we, we can talk about on a different episode. But you know, brain fog, it was happening more and more directly after meals. So that was a kind of a clue. I would eat breakfast especially, and then within like 10 minutes, I would be ready to take a nap. Like I I almost had to go back to bed some days. So that was probably the biggest symptom that caused a lot of stress in my life. Um, and then my digestion has always been weird. So I, like most of you probably, I didn't think much of it. I was like, oh yeah, sometimes I have diarrhea. Sometimes I don't go for days on end. It's just you know, that's how I've always been. I've always been on airing on the side of constipation. And then I'd have periods of time where, where I'd have looser stools. So at that point, you know, I was having the brain fog. Um, another symptom that I have dealt with for years at this point was like allergy, like reactions. And I mean, like, it felt like seasonal allergies. So that's what I thought it was. You know, my dad always had seasonal allergies. So I was like, yeah, like I have seasonal allergies and I took a Zyrtec or whatever it was every single day. But at a certain point, like it wasn't getting any better as the seasons changed. Um, I was having like really dry eyes to the point that it was painful. My skin was so itchy. I thought it felt like bugs were crawling on it. I thought my cats had fleas. Like I checked them so many times during those couple months and they didn't, they were fine. We were all fine. Um, And then my coach at the time, you know, he had me report my daily stool changes in a tracker sheet, much like I have my clients do. And he was like, hey, this isn't normal. Like your bowel movement shouldn't be like that. And I was like, oh, yeah, I guess. Like my stomach doesn't really feel bad. Um, And I think it did. It felt worse than I I let it, let myself think, I should say. Um, There were days where I would have stomach aches and it wasn't just like an ache. It was like a burning sensation in my lower abdomen. Um, Again, usually after meals, there were nights where I'd be really bloated. I felt like I had like a bowling ball in my gut and I was like, oh, I just haven't pooped in a couple of days. You know, I made excuses for it and I just kind of accepted that that was how I was. And I was really glad that my coach called me out on it. And this is where, you know, having a coach comes in handy because even with all the education I, I have and had at that point, 
I wasn't really able to be objective with myself and see that it was an issue. So he knew that I was complaining about brain fog. He knew that I wasn't feeling like myself. Um, and then the bowel movements were really weird. So that's when I decided to get a GI map stool test. And this is the test that I use with clients when we suspect GI issues. And the reason why I love it so much, and I have a post on this too, um, is just because it gives such an in-depth look at what is going on in your GI tract. It's actually really freaking cool. Like we can nerd out on it for a second. So basically the GI map stool test, and if you've never seen one, feel free to shoot me a message. I'm happy to share one of mine with you. I don't mind sharing my own data, um, but it tests for a lot of different things that and a common question that I get is like, well, why can't my doctor do this? And for whatever reason, you know, Western medicine isn't up with using this test. I don't know that they ever will be. I hope that they will. Um, but typically, the only practitioners, so to speak, that will use this test are, you know, functional medicine doctors, naturopaths, and then a lot of online coaches and dietitians like myself will use it as well. So it tests for like bacterial pathogens, so things that are foodborne like salmonella or shigella, things like E. coli. It tests for parasites, which when I got mine back, I did have a little bit of a parasite called Giardia. Giardia is super common, um, especially in people that have pets, dogs, cats. It's passed through their saliva sometimes. It tests for viruses like neurovirus. It tests for things like H. pylori bacterial overgrowth or dysbiosis. Um, so the GI map can't definitively diagnose SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, because it's a picture of the large intestine, not the small, but it can, you know, point to trends of that being the case. It also tests for candida, which is a yeast infection of the GI tract, other viruses, lots of parasites, worms, and it also gives us a big picture of our intestinal health, which is probably my favorite part of the whole test. Um, it basically shows us how our body is able to break down food or you know how it's not able to in some cases so it shows us if we're not digesting dietary fat properly if we don't have the right digestive enzymes to break down our food both of those things the not being able to digest fat and the lack of enzymes can cause bloating can cause food to be in the stool can cause constipation or like osmotic diarrhea so like more watery diarrhea because the body's just like yo get this out of me like i can't digest this it shows um, how our liver is functioning and detoxing for us. It would show if we had blood in our stool, which would be a possible cue for IBD, inflammatory bowel disease. It shows our immune function. It shows if we're reacting to gluten. It shows our inflammation in our gut. So that's why I love this test. So anyway, I got my first one. And like I mentioned already, I had a little bit of a parasite. But the biggest concerns were... Probable SIBO. Again, remember I said it can't diagnose SIBO, but I did have some dysbiosis. And basically what that means is some of my good bacteria were low and some of my bad bacteria were really high, which is that an overgrowth, right? An overgrowth of bad bacteria. And then the biggest one of all is, was candida. And Candida, remember, is that yeast infection of your GI tract. It can also show up, you know, in your oral cavity. And I had that as well. I had what was called oral thrush, which is basically like a white, like fuzzy, like coating on your tongue. So if you see that, um, especially in the morning, that could be a sign um, of, of candida. And then all my other symptoms lined up with candida. Um, again, the itchy skin, which is like a histamine reaction, the eventually I ended up having some skin rashes and I'll get to that part of the story because that was a funny part in a minute. Um, the brain fog because 
when you have an overgrowth or a infection like a yeast overgrowth, so candida, or a bacterial overgrowth like SIBO or H. pylori, which is another bacterial overgrowth, um, a lot of the foods that we eat feed these bacteria. And when these bacteria are being fed, especially like the SIBO, gas is being produced in the intestines. And this is where a lot of our symptoms are going to come from because food isn't being digested the way it should, right? And then we end up with vitamin and mineral deficiencies. We may end up with hormone weirdness, which I also had and we'll get to. So, you know, all these things are interrupt, not only interrupting the normal digestive process, but they are, you know, feeding essentially bad things that aren't supposed to be in there in that amount at least. Because something that's important to note is most of these bacteria and yeasts and everything that we've talked about exist in our GI tracts. They live inside of you now, but it's just in an amount that is fine, right? It's in an amount that isn't overgrown and everything is living happily ever after together um, until, you know, some of these issues start to start to arise. So yeah, the candida, the SIBO, and a little bit of the parasite. And then my intestinal health markers were not looking good either. My immune function was really low, which honestly didn't surprise me at all because the year 2022, my boyfriend and I both got sick more than like ever before. Um, I'm sure a lot of people were in this boat too. There was just a lot going around, but like COVID, I had the freaking flu for the first time since I was in like sixth grade. Like there was just a lot going on. Um, so yeah, so getting this test done was honestly like ridiculously eye-opening and validating because for like over a year probably, I thought there was something really wrong with me, like mentally. I thought I was going insane, um, especially with the brain fog. I was sleeping eight, nine hours a night and I just couldn't think straight. I could barely get through the day without copious amounts of, of caffeine, especially the itching too. Like no one else was itchy. My cats weren't itchy. My boyfriend wasn't itchy. And then, okay, so here's where the rashes came in. So the rashes were likely due to candida. That is a symptom. I looked like I had little welts on me. It was kind of, it was very gross, honestly. Um, so when I was waiting for the GI map, and this is something that I recommend doing for a lot of people, um, I changed to a low FODMAP elimination diet and that almost immediately got rid of a lot of my symptoms. But the one thing that I didn't do because I didn't know I had candida, I didn't avoid yeast and yeast directly feeds the candida overgrowth. So I was eating hella gluten-free bread, which had a lot of yeast in it. Um, and I think that's part of what triggered the rashes. So now, you know, whenever I have a client that I do suspect candida, we will start that elimination diet during our priming phase. Um, and avoid yeast as well. So, you know, what, what do you do next? So once you get, I got my test results, um, I felt super validated. Any, you know, I almost called my doctor and was like, I don't have food allergies, actually. I have all of this crap inside of me, all of these infections, right? So that is where we do a kill off protocol because in order to, you know, feel better and get rid of all of that bad bacteria and yeast in my GI tract, we had to, you know, take action. So this is where, and this is how I explain it to my clients, you know, there's one route, which is the herbal route, basically what that looks like. And that is actually what I did is it's usually an eight to 12 week process, sometimes longer of taking different herbal antimicrobials or antifungals, right? So those are going to be things like garlic oil, oregano oil, berberine, et cetera. Those are just a few. Um, and that is, you know, the more natural, you could say, way to go about it. And then you could also go get an antibiotic with your doctor. I always give my clients both options. I'm like, hey, this is what you can expect with both. 
with either, I should say, um, the decision at the end of the day is yours. So I decided to go with the herbal route just because that is, you know, what I know, what I'm comfortable with. Um, and I felt like that was something that I could control myself. So I put together a protocol and showed it to the coach I was working with at the time. And he was like, sweet, that looks great. Let's do it. So part of the herbal protocol obviously was those herbs that I mentioned, like garlic oil, oregano oil, um, I don't think I use berberine personally, but I use that one with different infections depending on, you know, what's overgrown and what's not. And then we also had to support my intestinal health markers. So I use something called colostrum to support my poor immune function. And yeah, when you hear colostrum, I'm sure a lot of you, especially the women in the room, think about breast milk and makes sense, right? Colostrum from your breast when your baby is first born is meant to give your baby antibodies and all these nutrients from you. Supplementing with bovine colostrum is a great way to boost your immune function. Um, I also was using different enzymes very specific to what was going on. And during the kill off phase, I stayed with an elimination diet. Um, I kept the elimination diet going for longer than 12 weeks. And oftentimes that is what you have to do. And I won't lie to you. That is, that is the hardest part about it. Um, is, you know, doing the elimination diet, which for most cases of what we find in a GI map is some variation of a low FODMAP diet. And basically what that does is it limits foods that are going to feed the overgrowth and cause symptoms. So something that I recommend thinking about or focusing on if you do ever have to do um, an elimination diet, the first thing to remember is that it's not forever, right? It's going to be your new normal for a little while, but it isn't forever. It's just the, you know, the, the step that needs to be taken in order to see the light at the end of the tunnel, essentially, right? So Whenever I have a client start on this, I give them my low FODMAP food list. And on one side, it says, you know, low FODMAP foods, which are the ones that are safe at the time, the ones you should focus on eating. And then on the other side, it says high FODMAP foods. And those are the list of things that you should avoid for the time being, right? So what I recommend doing is taking two highlighters and printing out those pages, right? And on the left side, you'll see the low FODMAP foods. So what you'll do is you'll take one color and highlight all the foods that you are willing to eat. On the other side, you'll see the high FODMAP foods that we want to limit or avoid for now. Take another color and highlight the ones that you eat commonly. So that way, together, we could find swaps and make sure that meals are still enjoyable. And I did truly enjoy my meals throughout this entire process. Um, if you ever have to do this, let me know because I have a whole repertoire of low FODMAP gut infection-friendly meals that I'll send to clients and also still use sometimes myself because I really like them. Um, but enjoying your meals is going to be really important. Otherwise, it's not going to be feasible for that period of time. And then question I get a lot is like, can I still eat out? And the answer is yes. You know, I still eat out not as much as I do now. Now I probably eat out at least once a week. But during that time, um, there were just specific restaurants that I knew were going to be easier for me to get what I needed than others. So we relied a little bit more on those um, because one of the biggest things that you need to limit or avoid with low FODMAP is garlic and onion, which makes it very challenging to eat out. So there were a couple of restaurants that um, I knew there were things on the menu that I did actually enjoy and that I could very easily, you know, adhere to the diet during that time as well. So, you know, the, the herbs are working, the diet is staying stable, and this is where during the kill-off, we may have a lot of different symptoms, right? I'll tell my clients, you know, you'll probably have a fluctuation between constipation and diarrhea. 
Um, the biggest symptom I had during it was nausea, just like after taking the herbs. But if you take them with meals and use things like ginger um, to soothe the the gut, it's not that bad and it usually passes. I've never had anybody have kill off symptoms that were that severe. Um, and then at a certain point, you'll usually have some diarrhea just to make sure everything's getting out. That's what we call die off. So I went through this process for about 12 weeks and then I retested. And with the retest, the candida was completely gone, which I was so excited about. And I knew it was going to be because at that point, you know, I was feeling better. My bowel movements were more regular. Um, I wasn't itchy anymore, which was amazing. A lot of the symptoms honestly subsided after the first couple of weeks just because the herbs were working and I was not eating the things that were triggering the candida. Um, and with my retest, you know, we found that the bacterial overgrowth, the possible SIBO was a lot better. So that was awesome. Um, but the intestinal health was struggling a little bit. So we had to do some extra, extra liver support. Um, I took things like calcium deglucrate, NAC, et cetera. So, you know, after your kill off, in most cases, you are going to want to retest just to make sure that everything is good to go. So <clears throat> after the retest, assuming, you know, we get rid of everything, we want to go into a rebalancing and repopulation phase. And I think that this is the phase that a lot of people miss, especially when they just go to their doctors, because typically, you know, your doctor can test for a lot of these things. They're just all separate tests. Like you could do a breath test to test for SIBO. They could do um, a breath test to test for H. pylori. They don't commonly test for candida. So that is one of the issues of using Western medicine. Um, but then, you know, you take an antibiotic, but you don't support your gut the right way during it and after it, and it comes back again because a lot of these things have a very high relapse rate. And I'm going to talk about how to avoid that after um, we get through this part. So, you know, when you're thinking about rebalancing your good bacteria, this is where, you know, you're still low FODMAP. You'll drop a lot of the kill off supplements, if not all of them, and start supporting digestive health even more. So you might add some enzymes, you might add some digestive bitters if you weren't already taking them. Um, and for me, I needed to add a lot of support for my intestinal lining. Because a lot of times, you know, right after the kill off, you will still have some lingering symptoms. Like I dealt with a lot of constipation after pulling the herbs and I have clients that have the same issue and just mild amounts of bloating, which are all common because we have to remember that whether you're taking antimicrobial herbs or you're taking antibiotics, you're essentially wiping your bacteria. If done correctly, you can avoid killing off too much of your good bacteria, but it, it's, it's a given, you know, it's going to happen. So that's where supporting during the kill off again, and this is where people go wrong with antibiotics. You need to be taking the right probiotic, right? You need to be taking, um, things to support your intestinal lining. So that way you don't end up with more inflammation and something called leaky gut, which is basically where, you know, toxins and food particles and all that stuff can pass easily through the lining, making it more permeable um, to inflammation, infections, et cetera. So during the repopulation phase, this is where we're really focusing on intestinal support. And then you slowly reintroduce the foods that you had been avoiding from the low FODMAP diet. Um, so this is what we call a reintroduction diet. And I like to go about it in a three-day fashion, right? So for the first day, you know, you pick one of the foods that you were avoiding. Usually I like to start with a soft fruit, so like a peach or plum or even honey, and introduce it in a very small amount. So like a third of the plum, a third of the peach, if you can eat that, 
with no life altering symptoms. So, you know, a little bit of tummy weirdness, pain, mild is normal. A little bit of gas is normal. Um, but if you have diarrhea, if you have extreme pain, et cetera, um, that is not, you did not pass the food, right? But say you pass the food the next day, you know, you, you increase the serving and you see how you feel. And then after the third day, if you still pass, you're good. And you can eat anything from that FODMAP group. So that typically takes a couple of weeks and is a, and is a little bit of a stressful, but also a fun process because you get to start eating things again and, and see how your gut felt. Um, so I honestly took a while before I reintroduced things just because I was really nervous. Like I feel like a lot of people are. Um, there were a lot of things that I did reintroduce really quickly, like a lot of vegetables, garlic and onion I introduced almost right away and was fine. But I did keep gluten and dairy out for a while just to make sure, you know, I wasn't causing any more inflammation. And, you know, if you, do, if you need to do that or not is case dependent. I have clients that do, I have clients that don't. Um, so we're repopulating the good bacteria by feeding it with, by diversifying the diet. And this is where, you know, we need to try different foods. We need to introduce the things that we were avoiding to some degree, right? There are some people that just eat lower FOD, lower FODMAP, and that's what keeps them feeling good, especially with, you know, more intense cases of IBS, um, which we'll talk about on another episode because IBS and SIBO kind of do go hand in hand. But repopulating the diet is the first step. And then from there, we're going to want to use a more broad spectrum probiotic. Um, I'll either at this point use a spore-based probiotic or a lacto-bifido blend. And the the lacto-bifido you do not want to use during the kill-off or if you suspect SIBO because those can, that can feed the overgrowth. But once we know that you're in the clear, you know, we can add that back in. And that's where we start really feeding the good bacteria. We're rebalancing and repopulating. And again, this is the step that's often missed because I feel like when I went to my doctor, she was just like, well, you probably have allergies. We should do a skin test. I said no, because I don't believe that that is super valid. That is my anecdotal and partially experienced and research-based experience. Um, I was like, no. And she's like, okay, well, just eat map. And I was like, forever? She's like, yeah. I'm like, uh, no, we're not doing that. And you don't have to either. I think that's that's what doctors will say. They're like, yeah, low FODMAP's good for your IBS. And you're just like, okay, so I can never eat any of the foods that I love again. Um, so you do need to reintroduce them at a certain point in a very controlled way. The speed of the reintroduction is different person to person. And if issues do arise, there's a lot that we can do to kind of comfort you and help your gut, you know, heal in the right way. One thing that I really love for my GI lining, and I use this on and off through the protocol, but I've been really heavy with it the last couple of months um, as I've been repopulating is aloe vera juice. Absolutely love it. Taste, eh, not so much, but um, I feel the effects almost immediately. And I just buy it at this grocery store, Amazon. I just take about two ounces twice per day before my morning and evening meal. Um, and I did notice a major increase in bowel movement regularity and also less frequent stomach aches while taking it. So, you know, after we've killed everything off, we might be retesting, we're rebalancing, repopulating. And this is, again, where you put the foods back in that you love. Because the way that you feel right now, it's not in your head. There's probably something wrong with your gut. And this is something that I've seen a thousand times um, in the last couple of years. And it is possible for you to eat normally again and not feel sick and not be afraid that you're going to have diarrhea or bloat in public or on vacation or whatever it is. So making sure that you repopulate correctly is is really key. Um, so at this point, I am eating completely normally. I eat gluten. I eat dairy. Um, and I don't really have any issues, still the occasional bout of constipation, but a lot of that is likely stress driven. So, you know, throughout this entire time of healing my gut, um, 
there were a lot of challenges. Don't, I'm not going to bullshit you here. Rem- remember full transparency on this podcast. It wasn't easy. And that's where I do recommend, you know, doing it with a coach or somebody that you can get in contact with at the drop of a hat. Like I love when my clients text me and I'm like, they're like, Hey, like, is this food safe for me to eat? Or what do you think about this restaurant? You know, and that's something that takes a lot of attention to detail just to make sure that you're not going to eat anything that is going to um, cause you any upset during the process. So healing my gut, you know, it mainly took place by actually working on my gut. But there were a lot of other things that I did outside of just like the supplement and diet protocols. Um, Biggest ones were probably managing my stress better. And that is also where hormones come into play. I should honestly just do a whole other podcast on this. But um, around the same time, like shortly after I did my GI map, I also did a Dutch test because... I was noticing that my energy was super low. I was feeling really overwhelmed by stress a lot. There were nights where I would sleep 10 hours again, like I said, and need literally I would nap. I would nap for an hour and I'm in the middle of the day and I am not a napper. I do not like to nap. I am usually a very energetic person. Um, Not that there's, there's anything wrong with napping, but, and then there were nights where I'd be awake in the middle of the night and wired. So I was like, okay, you know, something is probably up with my cortisol. And it was, my cortisol was zero ground zero. It was very bottomed out. All my sex hormones were insanely low. Um, And this is where, you know, I get the question a lot, like, well, I have hormonal issues. Should I do a hormone protocol or hormone testing? Or should I look at my gut? And I'm almost always going to say, look at your gut first, because something that's really important to remember, and this is also why I focused on my gut first, is that if your gut isn't functioning properly, you can't possibly support your hormones the way that you need to, right? Because we have to remember, you know, our gut has so many jobs. It has a big piece of our immune system in there. It's where hormones and neurotransmitters are are recycled and broken down and excreted or put back into circulation. Um, It is where our vitamins and minerals are broken down, absorbed, and go to where they need to go to do their jobs. And Vitamin and mineral deficiencies in lab work is one of the easiest ways to tell if something is wrong with the gut. And if you are having certain vitamin and mineral deficiencies like B, so like folate, B12, vitamin D is a common one that I see, you know, that is going to impact your hormonal health. So that's where, you know, whenever somebody asks me that question, like, should I work on my gut or my hormones first, I'm always, almost always, always, always going to say um, gut. And that's what I did, you know during the this whole time for my cortisol, all I really did was change my habits, right? And this definitely helped my gut as well. I changed my morning routine. And if you know me, I'm not a routine person at all. I kind of like I have a couple things that I are non negotiables for me to do in the morning and at night before I go to bed, but I'm not someone that religiously does the same thing every day, ever, like at all. Um, but during this time, I was so I'd wake up in the morning and I would turn on my happy light. If you want to know what a happy light is, I can send you the Amazon link, but it basically is just, you know, a little lamp that is supposed to mirror the sun. Um, And then within the first hour of waking, I would go outside and get some real sunlight, walk around and eat breakfast, right? So those are things that I was doing to support my adrenals, but they also helped with regularity of my bowel movements because it's all connected, right? Low cortisol is more commonly associated with diarrhea and high cortisol is more commonly associated with constipation. So it all goes hand in hand. Same idea with like sex hormone issues. Like I had low progesterone for a while, which also can contribute to bowel movement issues. So that's where, you know, getting the big picture and finding the root cause of what is really going on 
is probably the best thing that you can do. It was so rewarding to do that um, and to finally know everything that was going on. And now that my health is the best that it's honestly probably ever been, it it feels like it was so worth it. Like I don't regret a single thing. Um, I'm kind of thinking about, well, why does this happen or how and how can we prevent relapse? With the gut, especially like infections like candida and SIBO, it's usually a result of like chronic stress, chronic issues over time, right? So I mentioned earlier, a lot of my life before, before everything kind of really felt bad, I dealt with a lot of constipation when I was younger. Like even if you, I asked my parents the other day, um, I was like, oh yeah, mom, like when I was younger, like did I get constipated a lot? She was like, oh my God, yeah, all the time. I don't remember that much because I was young, but um, I guess that was a thing that was occurring apparent in most of my life. I do remember it through college and through prep and all of that. And when you're not going to the bathroom properly, all of that stool just sits in there and it ferments and it produces hydrogen, hydrogen sulfide and methane gas. And that is where we get SIBO, right? Same idea with the yeast infections. It all grows um, based off of the fermentation process. If we're not eliminating properly, or even if we are, you know, you can still be pooping most days and be constipated and backed up. Um, other people that are, you know, more prone to overgrowth or issues like this, you know, people with IBS that do have that fluctuation in, in bowel movements or one way or the other, um, people with IBD that have slower motility, gastroparesis, diverticulitis, et cetera, where the bowels aren't functioning at you know, their optimal, their optimal speed. So that is how a lot of it happened. So what am I going to do now that my gut is finally healed? I'm going to be very conscious of keeping it that way, right? So making sure a big thing for me lately has been trying to slowly increase dietary fiber. Because when you're eating on the low FODMAP diet, the fiber so one of the biggest priorities is keeping your bowels moving, right? So a lot of it is going to be habit driven once you've healed your gut. Because just because we're healed doesn't mean that our digestion is going to be perfect. And that's something that I'm always trying to help my clients understand and set that expectation for themselves, right? Especially because we're females and most we have a menstrual cycle or some remnants of it. We're going to have fluctuations. There will be weeks where our stool is looser. There will be weeks where we're not going as often. And that doesn't necessarily mean that something is wrong with you, right? But, you know, thinking back of why this happened, like I said, I've dealt with constipation on and off a lot of my life. Um, and most of it was driven by stress. And like speaking of hormones, I mentioned my cortisol was low. But before someone's cortisol drops and is low, it's usually high. Right. And I can pinpoint when it was high, you know, throughout my undergrad 2013 and so on um, for years and years and years. And I had all the symptoms, right? Not sleeping at all. Um, I would wake up at 2 a.m. and not go back to sleep. I was feeling riddled by stress and anxiety and overwhelm at all times. Um, I felt like I could never shut my brain off. I couldn't sit still. I couldn't do anything that wasn't work. I didn't, it was always like stress relaxing, right? And periods of high stress and hormonal imbalances on that end are going to breed more of that constipation. Um, and that, and is where probably a lot of this started. So, you know, a lot of the habits, and again, I'm not super into strict routines. I don't necessarily believe that you have to have them maybe in certain periods of your life, but some habits that, you know, I am really going to keep up in order to keep my motility going so that I don't end up with an overgrowth like this again, um, is going to be listening to my body. And I know that sounds so simple, but really learning how to tune in and auto-regulate 
is probably one of the best things that I learned throughout this journey. Um, something I didn't mention is during this journey of healing my gut, I probably worked out the least amount that I have in my entire life or since I started strength training in like 2014, right? Um, there, especially with the low cortisol and energy just being so, so dragging and my gut just feeling so yucky all the time. Um, I probably worked out like four times a month during a lot of this phase and you know my body composition didn't go to shit so hopefully that is helpful for you to hear i still kept up with my walks but i was doing a lot of resting a lot of sleeping a lot of netflixing and working but also you know it was a push pull and that's a big part of it too and that's something that even though i'm growing my business and really trying to focus on that i'm not going to give up completely right i think there's a big hustle culture right now, especially in the online coaching space where, you know, we have to be working all the time or else we're not going to be great and we're not going to be able to do all the things we want to do in our in our careers. And I don't necessarily think that that has to be true. Um, so, you know, making sure that I have time in the morning to do my routine. And again, it's not the same every day. The only thing that's the same is I eat breakfast and I go for a walk. But some days I journal, some days I foam roll, some days I go to the gym. Some days I go for a walk with a friend, but having that, like even just an hour in the morning where I'm not on my phone, you know, I'm not drinking coffee yet. Putting my coffee off an hour helps my energy not crash big time. I made that mistake yesterday and had coffee too early and I was struggle bussing after that. Um, but making sure I have some time for myself in the morning as well as at night, you know, I'm not gonna lie at night, I watch Netflix every night. My boyfriend and I watch Netflix. Like it doesn't have to be some big elaborate routine, but making sure you have that time to, you know, get started in the morning, get your head right, and then also wind down at night have been really helpful for me. Other things that are going to be really important while you heal your gut are going to be just like how you approach meals, right? I find that a lot of clients that do have a poor relationship with food, they have fear foods and they stress around eating out and they don't feel like they have control over their, you know, their food choices. They are more likely to have GI issues because we know how stress impacts the gut. Honestly, you know, IBS, which we'll talk about in a later episode, is mainly neurologically neurologically driven. You know, it's mainly related to stress and how stress impacts our motility. So, you know, managing stress and just being aware of when I'm having higher stress weeks, when I'm having more hormonal and, and, and you know, down weeks and just listening to my body and what it needs. The other side of it is food choices, right? There's a lot that you can do if you are, you know, starting to trend towards constipation, which will happen from time to time, even when your gut is healed. Um, it's something, again, like I said, I've struggled with on and off even since having a like healthy GI map result. Um, and a lot of that can come down to meal timing. A lot of it can come down to food choice, making things super easy to digest, knowing when to push with more like fun foods and when to pull back. Um, and then, you know, maintaining the habits that you probably built during the healing process. Because I know that if you ask any of my clients that have gone through one of these gut healing protocols with me, they can honestly tell you that they are probably a lot different in the way that they treat their bodies and the way that they, you know, they view food and all of that in a great way than they were when they started. So it is a learning process. And that's why, you know, I don't, I'm not like mad that it happened. And not only does it help me help my clients better, but I learned a lot about myself um, in the process. So that is essentially, you know, how I healed my gut and got back to eating normally after almost a couple of years of dealing with, you know, all of these symptoms. And I know that there are some of you out there that have been dealing with symptoms like this a lot longer than I have. So just know that I feel for you. And if you do ever need someone to talk to that I am here. 
But that is all I have for you today. So thank you so much for hanging out with me. I will talk to you soon.